welcome to another Dishcast. I'm really thrilled to have uh, a writer on today that I've really admired for a very long time. Complicated, nuanced, smart, but not bullshitting. Um, Wesley Yang is the author of The Soul of Yellow Folk, it's a collection of essays, which are really uh, they come at you from all sorts of angles that you can't quite predict, but which are extraordinarily uh, moving, I think, at times. And uh, also, he's now writing a new substack called Year Zero, which is examining really the origins and nature of what he has dubbed, and I think it's probably the best description yet, the successor ideology, the, the ideology that is replacing old-school liberalism as, a, as the basic rubric for our society. Wesley, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me, Andrew. So, tell me, you are you you're you're the child of immigrants. When did they come over? Your 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 parents. Uh, so my parents came over in the 1950s, and it was pretty unusual at the time because it wasn't until 1965 that large-scale immigration from Asia was allowed. Um, so that you know, I, I refer to them as both. Uh, refugees from the Korean War, uh, which they are. And um, my father was able to come here because he was um, he was he was the son of a privileged person <laughs> under the um, in in um, Japanese occupied or Japanese annexed Korea, right? So Japan annexed Korea, I think in 1908, <laughs> or it might be 1905. Um, I don't know exactly when, but so they grew up into, they grew up in a Korea that was nominally a part of Japan, right? Sort of colonial dominated Korea. Um, and his, his father became a, a wealthy self-made man under that regime. Um, and, uh, and so he spent the, uh, he spent the Korean war in Japan. Uh, and his, his mother was, um, his mother attended Vanderbilt University, which was very unusual at the time. And she came back to Korea and she founded the uh, nursing department at Korea's sort of leading women's university. And so it was by virtue of all of this that he was able to come to uh, study at a SMU uh, in the Jim Crow South in the early 1950s. Uh, he, um, uh, he didn't know which bathroom he was allowed to use, but he he did end up using the white one, and nobody stopped him. Uh, there just wasn't a uh, there wasn't a clear uh, rubric of what you were allowed to do and how he fit within. You know, there were fewer than a million people of Asian descent in America at that time, um, and he has a sort of interesting, colorful life story that I'd like to tell. Where, um, you know, he uh, he was. He, he, he used to play poker with the deacon's son at SMU, and he actually cleaned him out at one point. And the, uh, it was, at the time, it was a serious, hardcore religious university, and so he ended up being kicked out and blacklisted from every college in America. And, uh, and, um, because he was gambling? Because he was gambling. Wow. Yeah. And, uh, and so he kind of uh, kicked around, but eventually made his way out to... Los Angeles, where he met my mother, who was there for her own sort of unusual reasons. Uh, because if you were here as an Asian person, it was as an exception. And 
in her case, she, uh, you know, her family was uh, sort of, uh, they were sort of provincial gentry, right? But they were wiped out by the war and her, you know, her eldest brother was killed by quote unquote friendly fire from American and, you know, American bombers took out her houses. Um, and so she was working, uh, I think at the age of 15 or 16 in an orphanage. And um, she taught the little kids how to sing and dance. And so a visiting delegation of, uh, of, uh, of American uh, dignitaries uh, visited the uh, orphanage and they, and they were so moved by the spectacle of these children singing and dancing. And they, they asked who had taught them how to do this. And, uh, and then sort of, you know, my mother was introduced to them. And then there was an American general who wanted to um, adopt her and bring her to the United States. And then it turned out to be the, the, a couple of women serving in uh, an occupational, in a, in, a, uh, in a civilian capacity in the military, ended up being the ones to do it. And so they sponsored her and they brought her over to the U.S. and to Los Angeles, where she eventually met my father. So that's, that's, that's fascinating. What kind of visas were they on? Were they, if you forgive me for asking, I mean, did they, they got green card through their special skills or were they, were they, were they, were they O visas? Were they uh, study visas? Were they, et cetera, et cetera? I, I think my father, it was a study visa uh -huh. and my mother, it was some kind of special charity visa. case mm -hmm. of some sort. And sort of part of the, part of the sort of colorful lore of my family was that my mother went on a show called Queen for a Day. Have you ever heard of this right. or, or actually seen it? It's a show where women would go on and they would compete with one another for uh, the tragic story that they would tell. Um, and there would, there would be a winner that the audience would select and then you would get all these prizes and you would be made a queen for a day. Um, and this was one of the most popular shows in America for a couple of decades. And I remember when I was very young, I heard this story and all I cared about was my, that my mother had been on TV and my mother was like, no, we don't want to actually like want to talk about this. But 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 uh, but no, the the sort of some of the furniture that I grew up with and, and then an enormous leather bound Bible that was in our living room were all given to her. But she had all won them on a game show where she huh. sort of she, where she had to sort of tell the story of her tragedy and suffering up against you know, sort of, uh, you know, rural white women, because I, you know, I watched a few episodes and, and those were the people that they would focus on. And, you know, what, what one becomes conscious of how, uh, of, of how sort of incompletely, <laughs> incompletely integrated and civilized the, the country remains, right? <laughs> like, in, you know, in the 1950s, there is this like old, weird America that would become a part of like this fishbowl televisual satisfaction in the form of a game show. But, but, but there wasn't a spirit of kind of like ironic and smirking contempt. There was this like very earnest, like Christian sensibility to it. Uh, very interesting on many different levels. And anyway, so like she won that show and, 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 uh, and, and, some of my childhood furnishings come from it. <laughs> well, were your parents <clears throat> religious in some ways? Was the Bible just an accident? Well, it, it, you know, they they were both nominally Christian. So my grandfather had converted, and it was, you know, in, in the Korea of that time, it was a sign of his modernity, right, and his uh, sort of uh, identification with, uh, and so, the, like, their house was the only one in the village that had a telephone, 
And so people would come from the village and they would use the telephone. And so Christianity was one of the accoutrements of, of, of being advanced at that time. And um, I think he became really devout. And my mother's siblings became tremendously devout um, as a result of the war and, and everything they had sort of lost in the process. My mother did, did not herself become that way. But, you know, they were nominally Christian and my name, um, you know, Wesley is a reference to the, you know, the Methodists were the missionaries that that proselytized in Korea. And I think it's the largest sect, although there's also a lot of Presbyterians and so on. Um, and in many cases, you know, the, the sort of a theistic belief <laughs> that has evaporated in some Protestant and mainland Protestant sects is still... Um, is still felt very zealously by the people they converted in other countries. This is true of many sort of like Korean and Chinese and Asian sects. Um, it's not true in the case of my family, although I did sort of, I, I went to a Protestant church as a, as a young person and went through confirmation and, and sort of familiarized myself with Christianity to some degree and do feel that it had some kind of role in, in my uh, formation as a moral entity. So. And also, in a way, of course, in the background to American identity, which, you know, the, perhaps the most stunning recent development in the 21st century has been a really marked collapse in adherence to even the norms of Christianity. I mean, even if you aren't a fully fledged believer, there was always a sort of formal Christianity that you observed in a way that the founders would have observed that does seem to have disappeared. And you found your way eventually into writing. But that doesn't seem to have been something that you were driven towards. In fact, you, 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 you seem to have been a bit, a bit of a loss in your teen years and, and early adulthood. Am I, am I misinterpreting that? Well, so, you know, I occupied a kind of anomalous role. I went to a high school that had about 80 kids in its graduating class. So it was a small town, and I was part of the... Uh, 1974 was the nadir of the American birth rate um, after after the sort of 30 glorious years, you know, of, of the post-war years. And it was, you know, you think of, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the Nixon impeachment and the oil shock and the embargo and stagflation. So we were at the bottom of all of that. And, you know, a previous period of sort of great, um, you know, like despair in the American project that was, that was um, you know, sort of reflected in, in its birth rates. So, our town, our high school, you know, used to be three to four, you know, not so long ago had been like three to four um, times the size that it was when I went there. So I was part of like a diminished cohort. Um, and, 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 and I think that reflects a kind of um, fits in, you know, with a sort of Generation X sensibility. Um, we are, you know, Generation X is, I think, more than 10 million smaller than the baby boom uh, cohort and more than 10 million smaller than the millennial cohort that succeeds it. So we were this kind of like in between generation and, and uh, I was definitely part of that. Yeah. I, I, I personally identify with that in between generation, although I am technically just at the lower edge of boomerdom, mm. but I think if your parents were boomers, you're not, <laughs> that's my, that's my general fear. It's also my view about Obama who, Insisted to me, he was not a boomer; that he was a Gen X person, uh, because his his mom was a boomer, and of course had her had him 
at a relatively young age. And yes. How did you find your way to writing? Well, I was very interested in it as a young person. And like, I wasn't good at math, but I was very good at English. And, um, and my parents were not tiger parents in the same way, although they were relatively more stern than the parents of uh, sort of, you know, white Americans of my generation. Uh, but they, um, my father in particular, right, like was not, it, it wasn't, they just were different and they're generationally different than the people who came here after 1965. Like after 1965, there are a lot of people who sort of, uh, you know, had graduate degrees and so on. And, and they sort of established the archetype of the Asian American overachieving, uh, you know, nerd. And, and, and my parents were, you know, they were born in the 1930s. And, and so they're, they're quite distinct and they were born in the 1930s. And the, their experience of war really sort of like at a very formative age, like tore them asunder from like Korean culture or Asian culture or however you want to describe it. And so in a way, they're like very sort of particularly my father, these sort of like existentialist figures. Right. And and um, and and so. Uh, and so, I, you know, like I went to school, I was perceived as smart. Uh, by virtue of, you know, sort of this thing, there's this term called stereotype promise, right? Which is the opposite of stereotype threat, like simply by, and and I, I was a different sort of, you know, but like I wasn't great at math and science. I wasn't headed along the path toward being an engineer or a doctor, although my parents would like for me have to, to have done that. And they, and, and so, you know, I don't know. I just like picked up my, like my brother went to college. I picked up his, his like Nietzsche reader and, you know, like in eighth grade and so on. And so I just was sort of headed on this direction of kind of styling myself in a very pretentious, you know, young person's way as an intellectual of sorts. So in, and, in Nietzsche in eighth grade, any, any, uh, yeah. <laughs> he, he is, he is a remarkably easy read in many ways. If, if, if you, it's it just aphorism by aphorism, it's, it, and you, 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 as a kid, you also don't have to kind of synthesize all of it or understand all of it. And he's actually a, it's under, he's underrated, I think, as a writer, like Freud is underrated as a writer. That they're, they're quite genius writers in a way. Uh, sure. Uh, I think better than, you know, you, you can... You can see Marx's 18th Brumaire as kind of a, a, a really cool piece of journalism, but the rest of it is pretty turgid. But but those two, wow, you can barely read a book of theirs even today without really being uh, sh shaken by the clarity and energy of the, of the, of the language. Absolutely. Were you, were you, who else were you influenced by? Who did you want to be? I, you know, I read a ton of Kurt Vonnegut in my really? high school years. And then, and then the thing that I got, I really got serious about was James Baldwin. And so I read oh. those essays like in my junior year and it happened, which happened to coincide with the LA riots. And so I went through this, I went through that whole, you know, I went through this whole period. Um, all, all of my essays, all of my college essays were written in that sort of, you know, that kind of Jamesian biblical you know sort of mimicry of, of of baldwin and um and and then i i then i read um and then i got a little tired of him <laughs> and and uh and then i read some 
criticism of him by uh, Irving Howe. And I remember he just took the position, oh, you're just kind of overestimating the, the degree to which, like, you know, this 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 is actually central, right? Um, and, uh, you know, I was kind of... Baldwin was overestimating the presence of racism as... as, as a... <laughs> the presence of, like, race as something that everybody else like was also obsessed with and was at the core of their identity. Um, right. And I was impressed by this kind of lack of identitarian deference that he showed. And, and, um, and, and so. That's interesting. You say that because, because that lack of reverence is, and obviously Irving Howe is one of the writers that really could give a shit what race gender you were. If, if, <laughs> if, if your arguments were in his view, uh, faulty, yes. he would let let you have it, and that that was a that was a that was a spirit of the thing that, that in fact it, it, it was irrelevant. In fact, the ability to flout those ten, tender uh, versions of sort of racial politesse was part of what it felt like to be an intellectual in a way. Uh, at least that's what Howe brought home to me. I loved Baldwin too, and. Although I, you know, I I started with Giovanni's room uh, uh, because I obviously I wanted to explore, dare I say it, the intersectionality of <laughs> the black gay experience, which I think has always been to me a fascinating, fascinating insight into both worlds. Actually, because they 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 can illuminate both worlds in in a way that others few others can. Um, so 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 you start writing essays um and if we think of Howe's critique of baldwin as as a, as a moment in your evolution uh did it did it did it also help you relate to your own identity or lack of identity as a an asian male this 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 figure like your father having ha having no bathroom uh, which is sort of this lovely metaphor really for that makes the asian american a fascinating vector for understanding the binary nature of American racial relations. Right. So we have these kind of non-black, non-white minorities that have come in large numbers since 1965, but in rapidly increasing numbers since the 1980s. And, and so the country becomes, as a result, right, relatively less white, but it also becomes relatively less black in a way, right? And so this sort of the salience of the the kind of central drama, right? Like central antagonism, but also the central sort of wound injury that has driven American history is simply by um, simply by virtue of being demographically crowded out, right? Like it it it, it points toward you know a range of different possible futures and and but the the kind of the um at the moment where we become conscious of there being a uh you know ceasing to be 50% white right ceasing to be majority white um in the year 2050 or 2040 or you know there there are various uh projections about this um I see both sort of MAGA and the awakening as manifestations of a kind of, right? Like manifestations of a kind of panic, 
uh, about, on the one hand, sort of, you know, resisting resisting that dimension on the part of MAGA, right? Or resisting that movement. And then on the other hand, wanting to resolve the unfinished business between white and black America, however you want to define it. And of course, the woke has a very clear idea of how they want to define it um, before groups that are not really on the hook, right? Like take center stage and begin to exert their influence and start to be equal partners in defining what it means to be American. And these, these non-black, non-white groups are still relatively undefined, um, have not sort of made their presence felt in the culture. Um, and, and so for the most part remain kind of, you know, ideological uh, counters or, you know, sort of instruments, you know, of the other groups. And then we have this kind of like woke narrative that many sort of like college educated, integrated into an activist class sensibility, non-black, non-white minorities glom onto, but it's not, it's not really credible, right? Like the, the, the group whose income grew at the fastest rate between the years 2014 to 2019, are Hispanic Americans. Um, and then of course, from a, from a higher base, but the group who are right behind them are Asian Americans. And so these are two groups that came here, not in pursuit of, uh, in, for the most part in pursuit of this, this thing we refer to traditionally as the American dream and, and who for the most part on average as a whole tend to find it and the sort of statistics and so what will their relationship be um, to, to sort of a, a restrictionist, you know, sort of nativist tendency? Well, you know, there, there will be some hostility there that for the most part, and of course there will be exceptions. And, and what will their relationship be to an agenda that seeks to gerrymander outcomes by race, right? For the most part, it will, there will be some wariness there that simply by virtue of their positioning in between. And so, um, and so me, yeah. yeah, and 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 none of the all of these things for most of my life were sort of not understood or articulated or on the agenda, and they barely are articulated at the moment. But we see these stirrings of uh, you know the 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 role that these groups can play, sort of in the politics of the country, and 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 there's suddenly. Like at the time that I accepted the assignment to write a book about Asian Americans, I ended up sort of not writing it and just turning it into this like collection of pre-existing essays because there wasn't, there weren't the people that you could tell the story through. There, there weren't figures like Andrew Yang who could sort of like serve as the, as the narrative hook. The other narrative hooks that you have out there just seemed mostly artificial to me, right? This kind of like, Oh yeah, this guy Vincent Chin, he was killed in the 1980s or whatever. We're still going to talk about him as like the linchpin of Asian American identity. There are people who are very invested in that, and there is a kind of a, there's a academic and an activist uh, infrastructure that is very invested in that. But like it doesn't actually mean anything to most of the people who came here afterwards and who are in the process of like creating a new identity. Um, and so. Why do, um, we, why do we have to fixate on this term non-white? Because in a way, I mean, let me suggest to you this, that, that it, it, it seems quite likely to me, looking at how Latinos are, Latinxes are 
succeeding in, in a kind of classic American way. Asian Americans have succeeded in a kind of amazing American way, <laughs> unlike very, very few others. I mean, Jews, for example, have done as extraordinarily well as Asian Americans, but there are many more Asian Americans. In other words, that, you, that it would not surprise me if you, if you think of the Latino population, which of course is itself a kind of crude term. We're, we're talking about Cubans, we're talking about Mexicans, we're talking about Venezuelans, all of whom are going to have very different and nuanced positions on politics. But, but there's no reason to believe that they won't, in 40 years' time, be seen the way that Italians are currently seen. If you, if you look at the rhetoric about Italians, uh, Southern Europeans in the early part of the 20th century, there was all the similar stuff, but they're white now. Uh, and then, of course, the Asian experience uh, is this strange, this strange term, white adjacent. Uh, and it does seem to me, you're right, that the, the, that the Asian American influx and success kind of scrambles both sides. Uh, obviously, it's not really uh, kosher for the white nationalists in so many ways. But it seems to be almost a source of panic on the left. I mean, I'm... I'm often struck by how whenever I touch on that subject, the fury coming from the left, especially around this model minority myth, uh, is very intense. It's as if they suspect that this is a real problem for them and are absolutely intent on making sure that Asian Americans are put into the box that African Americans were put into uh, as a way to understand their interaction with the rest of America. Am I... Where am I wrong in, in that? Well, so there's this, uh, you know, there's this kind of like whiteness studies, um, you know, subspecialty within history that has, has sort of become kind of a dominant activist framing for American history where, you know, sort of Italians and, and Irish and successive waves of non-Anglo Europeans would, would eventually attain this thing called whiteness, right? And they would do that by joining in or being even more zealous, right, in, in their oppression of blacks as a way of establishing their, um, you know, establishing their belongingness in their new country. But, you know, sort of, but if you look at the sort of um, the, the, the generational state of Hispanic Americans uh, relative to uh, the generational state of Italian Americans at a similar phase in their integration into Society, if you look at various like metrics of integration in terms of like intermarriage and education and whether they speak the language of the old country, like, you know, Hispanics are ahead of where Italians were in their corresponding stage in their American odyssey. Right. And 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 of course we are. And we did see in the last election that, that there was something like a 10 point you know, move toward Donald Trump. And and the largest sort of regional move in his direction was at you know, in, in, in a border town, right, like in a border county in Texas that is 94% Mexican, I believe, um, you know, where where the, the move was something like 40 points, right, in the direction of the Donald Trump. And, um, and uh, I, I remember in 2019, there were, during the summer of 2019, there were the polls, this was the babies in cages period. There were polls showing that like, there are a handful of polls showing that like a majority, like absolute majority of Hispanics like approved of, of Donald Trump, right? And I wanted to write something about it at the time. Uh, I, I spoke to, uh, I happened to run into Roy Teixeira and I asked him, um, 
is it possible that we're going to see a big swing in his direction? And he sort of, you know, he's the demographer, he's the political demographer, and he pooed the idea. So I didn't think I had cover to, you know, uh, write about it. But he has subsequently, after this election, written a piece sort of consolidating what we now know to be the fact, which was that there was like a big move in the direction of Trump, uh, like among Hispanics. Um, and it seems so inconceivable to people, but all you have to do is look at the figure that I just cited, which is that between the years 2014 and 2019, the group that did the best, <laughs> like in America, were Hispanic Americans. And and so... But the, it also means that Hispanic Americans that we, yeah. are not within the same rubric, are not thinking in the terms that, or in the very binary terms of black and white, that, that certain people on the left still insist upon. Right. And so... Given the history that I just spoke to you about, right, this like how the Irish became white, they became white by joining in as oppressors uh, of black people. There is this consciousness that that is a potential uh, on the left, uh, on the progressive left. And there is a determination, right, like not to repeat that history, which they see as kind of like, you know, having sort of the ha having anti-blackness be the basis of a, a newly regenerated American whiteness, or whatever we want to call it, um, it would be the kind of is part of is part of the kind of Afro pessimist worldview. Is part of the critical race theory worldview. There, it has some basis to it, um, and and so they're very keen to avoid that, which is why they want to not allow this thing that would probably ordinarily happen uh, if things were left alone which is why it's necessary to take over the educational system and, you know, sort of take the ideas that have integrated uh, sort of uh, college educated professional class Latinos into, into sort of like a, a grievance economy worldview and apply that to the ordinary schools, right? The regular public schools, which is, which is in fact what, what they're in the process of doing. Um, and, and that's, that's, what's really at stake there, there, there's this idea that like left to their own devices, like, you know, Latinos are going to become the new Reagan Democrats and we have to prevent that from happening. And the way that we can prevent that from happening that is by, you know, teaching them about, uh, you know, herstory with an X you know, for the E and cis-heteropatriarchy cis and, and, and so like these are terms that are, that have been sort of, um, th that are a part of the uh, California Ethnic Studies curriculum, which the state recently mandated as a graduation requirement. Um, and, and there is, there, you know, there's a desire to increase the, uh, the number of people who, who buy into this and, you know, we'll, We'll see to what extent that happens. Um, for the most part, you know, the the move uh, to to moving in the direction of being the Reagan Democrats or the DeSantis Democrats, right, of of 2024 or 2028, um, is already happening to some degree and probably would happen left to its own devices. And and there's this idea that we can like educate our way out of it. And that's what's at stake in the sort of critical race theory 1619 project debate. It's this, this is this attempt to kind of like engineer a people of color 
uh, majority that can finally oust the, the toxic whiteness that was responsible for Trump and that was responsible for everything that came before him, because you want to include within that toxic whiteness, the, um, you know, the sort of the creation of the prison industrial complex, the, the, the compromises with wel welfare reform and um, that, that Clinton, Biden, you know, the, the, the old regime of sort of like, uh, you know, of the gerontocrats, right, that, that still run the Democratic Party, they were all responsible for that turn, right? They made that turn in the 90s. They stuck around long enough to, to be in a position where they're pushed by the, um, by, the, by the activist class within their ranks and within their party to repudiating all of that as a part of the politics of repudiating Trump. And, and, and uh, so it is, is this the amazing sort of confluence of events where you have people who sort of by their prior political identity and by their natural political uh, you know, predisposition would not ordinarily have ended up embracing these ideas that we all knew were out there within the academy and within the activist class, but who by virtue of um, the, the sort of the power of the negative partisanship generated by anti-Trumpism ended up taking a turn against these things and then embracing these ideas that served a certain convenience, but that also have their own potency and power. So there is this like process of mutual co-appropriation of the one by the other, such that we now have the military, you know, sort of like signaling, you know, rainbow flags and so on and so forth. And I, I wanted to ask you like how you feel about all that and, well, and the, the CIA and the intelligence services and so on. And in, in a way it's a kind of total victory, right? And in, and in a way there's this kind of, mutual appropriation of the one by the other that that can be a little strange yes i'm i'm uh but what i'm really interested in what you just said is to see this movement in some ways as reactionary in other words it's begun to see the emergence of a much more complicated racial situation in america much more a much more fractured and varied and diverse system of, of different ethnic groups, different religious groups, different racial groups, and so on and so forth, and are terrified that this will actually succeed in the classic American way, which in their view would simply, which I don't share, but which they, for reasons that are not entirely uh, irrational, would entrench anti-blackness, as, as you want to say. Uh, the idea that you could actually have a uh, a realization of the American dream by Asian Americans, Latin Americans, without anti-blackness, which seems to me completely possible, and in fact, in contemporary terms, would be far more likely to happen because we're not in the twenties and we're not in Jim Crow America, and the, that those opportunities to become credentialed by being anti-black are, it seems to me, uh, very few and far between these days, culturally and socially. No, so but let me get to the Asian American specific impact in this because you know in california you know they, there was a vote on 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 affirmative action you see and it went down pretty heavily the the board of regents of the university of california commissioned this uh this huge study very of their own their own experts that came up and said actually keeping the sat is uh is is the most effective way to reach smart young minorities new immigrants poor black kids and so on still they were overruled and and it's out. And SATs are under siege 
obviously throughout the United States. So that study came out around February of 2020, mm-hmm. right? So like they, 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 they commissioned a group mm-hmm. of faculty experts to answer a series of questions such as, is the SAT biased by race? Like, uh, and, and, and they went and they studied it, you know, for, you know, a number of months and they came back with a, you know, a 200 page report saying, no, in fact, it's like, we, we've studied it. Right. It's, it's actually not like racially biased and it actually gives opportunity, um, you know, to, to, to poor people of promise who would not otherwise be identified. Um, and, that was the recommendation. That was the official recommendation that they had sought. And then, you know, a guy a guy dies under horrible circumstances in Minneapolis, and the thing is out the window. And you know, the same thing happened in Princeton, where they 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 created like a commission to study whether we should get rid of uh, Woodrow Wilson, right? And the, the the you know his his identification with the university, his name, and you know, like like Woodrow Wilson was like a vicious. <laughs> Right, like like anti-black racist um, by any standard. Uh, One of the worst and, in and, history. But but he's also a figure who is strongly identified with the legacy of Princeton. So they did their study and they came back with the recommendation, a formal recommendation, that like no, in fact, like you know, we want to contextualize him, we want to sort of confront and talk about the history, but we don't want to dissociate from him entirely. Like he, you know, he's a foundational figure in the history of this university. And that came in like around April of 2020. And then of course, you know, like, and, and I'm sure they had every intention of adhering to that recommendation. That was the recommendation they were actually looking for, right? And then like a month later, of course, you know, it, it was all off the table. Now with, propos- like, with affirmative action, this all goes back to the politics of the 1990s, right? So in, in the 1990s, the, the electorate was still majority white, Right. But the overall demographics of California was, you know, was uh, was no longer majority white. And so that so like they reached the demographic tipping point that America as a whole is going to reach in the in the year 2040. And so the the sort of diminishing white electoral majority, you know, they they, um, they you know, they voted to deny, um, you know, certain public services to uh, undocumented immigrants. And they voted to, um, you know, forbid the use of racial preferences in in government contracting, in university admissions, and so on. And so the idea for those who wanted to reinstitute this was that the racial demographics of the electorate is going to change in the future, and then we can come back for a second bite of the apple, and then we'll reverse this thing once the you know once California is no longer a majority white, you know, backward looking, you know, like. Uh, uh, you know, electorate, and 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 so that's what 2020 was, right? And so they came back for that second bite of the apple at the point at which the country is, uh, the, the state is uh, demographically dominated by Hispanics, and where they are an electoral plurality, right? And so, like, in fact, if you look at the politics of this, it actually was a one minority group, Hispanics using their political power in the legislature to take things away from another minority group, Asian Americans, all while declaring their fight against a white supremacy that no longer actually exists, right? And so that's one part of the sort of absurd comedy of it. And and then the other part of the absurd comedy ended up being, of course, this newly diverse 
electorate then went to the polls, expressed their democratic will, and it turned out that they defeated it by an even greater, <laughs> they defeated affirmative action by an even greater margin than the white demographic had done so. And so in, even in this election, uh, Hispanics and Asian Americans voted against the measure at a higher rate than white Americans, right? Uh, or than white Californians. And so it's a sort of a ringing sort of repudiation, but it's one of the handful of times when a policy that is for the most part subject to the undemocratic will of, of, of elites, of, of, of administrators and so on, gets the test of demo, you know, dem democratic, um, you know, seeks democratic validation. And yet again, right, like we have not succeeded in educating our public into the state of enlightenment that we're seeking. And, you know, it's like the, the, um, the rate at which uh, sort of uh, those who uh, opposed the reinstitution of affirmative action uh, were able to spend, right? They, they were outspent like nine to one, right? By, and, and all of the great and good of California, its political class, its, its institutional class, its university presidents, its corporations were arrayed behind the push. Um, and it met a group of people, Asian American and Hispanic voters who especially in the case of Hispanics who would be net beneficiaries um, of, of the change, their moral intuitions as new Americans told them, no, we don't want a society gerrymandered by race. Yeah. And, and however, <laughs> it doesn't ultimately matter because then the, the regents went ahead and they got rid of the SAT. And so like, they, ultimately this is an elite policy in the hands of, the, uh, of an elite and, and the sort of like what the formal law says doesn't really matter that much. So the example that I use is that the, the medical school at UCSF, University of San Francisco, they, they announced the racial demographics of their next year's class. And the racial demographics of the next year's class was, um, went down, like the Asian share went down by 40%. Right. right. So like Asians were like something like 60% of their demographics the year before. Now they went ahead and did this in advance of the referendum. So they went ahead and did this in advance of it being legal. Like the prior referendum was still the controlling law, but they just said, no, we're just gonna go ahead and do this thing that we really want to do. And we're gonna give you a model of what things will look like. And so like the, you know, the, the Hispanic and black share went up by 15 to 20 points in both cases. I think there were slightly more whites, right? Than before and, and a huge chunk taken out of uh, you know, the, the Asian representation at that school. Um, and so that was a model of what we can expect under the equity agenda, under the successor yeah. regime. And, 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 and so the same thing happened at, uh, you know, Thomas Jefferson High, which is, uh, you know, a specialized high school uh, in, in, a, in, a, in Fairfax County, Virginia, which is, you know, by, by acclamation seen as the best public school in America. Um, you know, they redid their racial demographics and, you know, I think the white share went up by 10% and the Asian share went down by 20 or 30%, some large percent. So there is this thing where we claim to be attacking whiteness and white supremacy when actually we're taking away things from a non-white immigrant group. So right? And so like, now there, there is clearly spreading resistance to this in school boards. Uh, local fights have been really quite bitter in New York. Uh, Stuyvesant and other schools are also under siege. But what amazes me is that Asian Americans have not, don't seem to be fundamentally changed their political stripes during this, that they are still broadly aligned 
with the party that really seeks to uh to 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 stymie their success in 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 many ways and their own and to and to contradict their own values of individualism hard work so where is is it is it trump is it is it is it that Asian Americans are caught between you know the scylla of of of, of white nationalism and the charybdis of of woke insanity and are biding their time maybe or just uh, just feel insecure the way Jews and gays do in the Republican ranks and that that's a step a little too far. Uh, I mean, I I can't support Republicans. Well, you moment. know, I I don't have a, an overall explanation of this, but as recently as like the mid '90s, right? Sort of like majorities of Asian Americans voted Republican, and so and and yeah. but and so but the it seems like the more recent. Um, uh, you know, arrivals have have for the most part bought into the people of color sort of Democratic Party narrative. I don't exactly know why, but certainly the anti-immigrant strains, right? Like uh, in Trump and Trumpism is is a is a, it's a major turnoff. Um, but but yeah, I mean, Asian Americans are overwhelmingly, you know, still voting for the Democratic Party. I don't think they vote in very large numbers. And and certainly there are pockets of resistance. And and uh, in in California, prior to like back in 2013, 2014, there was an attempt to uh, bring back a constitutional amendment that would bring back affirmative action. And Asian Americans in in sort of Asian ethnoburbs, like in uh, uh Cupertino and so forth, they organized and they organized on uh, WeChat, right? The the sort of, uh, you know, Chinese language uh, social media app. And they proved to be surprisingly effectual in, in sort of like these are new people in the country. They, they come from a country that, where they don't have much experience participating in democratic politics, but they were able to like turn the tide on the previous attempts and then they were able to beat back the 2020 attempt. And um, and it's true also in, in New York City, de Blasio has retreated somewhat. They, 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 they have, de Blasio has retreated. I think at a certain point, they were going to get rid of all gifted programs yeah. and they have backed away from that. And, uh, and the test remains in place at the specialized high schools. And... The, the important story to tell about the specialized high schools is that there's a simple solution to that situation over there, right? What de Blasio proposed to do was replace the test, the single test admissions uh, for those schools with the only, the only proposal that would actually result in changing the racial demographics of the schools, which is taking the top seven or 8% of every middle school and making the schools be about that. And the answer is, is to like create, take a couple of the specialized high schools and create a couple of new ones that use that alternative rubric. Cause I think those schools would be good, right? Like, but, but leave a thing that has worked very well for decades and that happens to align very well with the kind of cultural priors of a set of non-white immigrants into this country. Um, and, and that th there's actually nothing broke about that system. No. You know, like the system is not ideal. 
it's not for everyone. It, like, like schools that like, and like the Stuyvesant High School is not what it is by virtue of having any extra funding or uh, an elite core of teachers. It's the usual run of New York City public school teachers. What makes it what it is, is this like distinctively competitive culture that the students bring to it. And that's a culture that was sustained throughout the 20th century that continues into this day. It used to be as recently as the early 1970s, uh, like an, an 80% Jewish school, right? And now it's a 70, 80% Asian school and that's okay, right? Like, and it's, it's a pressure cooker. It's not for everyone. It's more male than it is female when you focus on tests, when you, when you use like, uh, you know, other metrics, you know, you get what we have in the um, screen schools, right? And the screen schools tend to be a little bit more diverse, but they also tend to be more white than they are Asian. And they they sort of, they, they look at you, they evaluate you along a wider set of dimensions. And that's fine too, <laughs> right? Like all of these things are fine. There was recently like a photo that showed the, um, the US like math Olympiad like America defeats China for yeah. the first time, but like, you know, the photo is like, right. Like the photo is like four Chinese guys, <laughs> right? Like Chinese American guys. And, and, and really what we have to be able to say is that a photo that has that photo, right? Like America defeats China in the math Olympiad. And then like a photo of the, well, I guess the, the basketball team is actually not doing that great, That's but right. you know, and say this is yeah. actually what it means for diversity to be our strength, right? Like diversity, and 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 like unless we get to the point at where we're able to say that, instead of like proceeding from the assumption that like all of humanity is going to be represented in proportion to their demographic share of the country as a whole, which is an insane and absurd idea, right? Yeah. Because People are different in their interests and in what they invest themselves in and what they spend their time on. And as a result, they're going to end up, right, like, um, you know, they're, they're going to end up being diverse in the way that I've just described, not in the way that they're going to be evenly uh, distributed across every occupational field and, uh, and setting. One of the responses to what you just said, which is that this is, is actually culturally congruent with a new minority group, like competition, testing, success, hard work, merit, all these concepts that I personally agree with you are universal and tend to motivate people to do their best. Um, but this is being redescribed as whiteness, which seems to me to be a, a, a way of, to, to get around the notion of to, to redefine the idea of hard work or merit or competition and competitiveness and individualism as somehow coded with a skin color, which I, so the yeah, the, the bizarre irony of it is, is that this kind of idea of whiteness that was came together in the 80s and the 90s, it only obtained its mainstreaming and its intellectual hegemony at the precise moment where it definitely is not true <laughs> at a glance. Yeah. If you look at the, you know, because the kind of the white Asian achievement gap continues to widen. And this is a gap that is in favor of Asians, right? And and so on most most of the ways that you can measure, you know, sort of outcomes 
health outcomes, right? Like income outcomes, education outcomes. There is a marked and growing, you know, sort of white Asian gap. And so we have this group that clearly is not practicing whiteness, and yet they're practicing a set of behaviors <laughs> that happen to be very consistent with what our system is designed to reward. Right. And the two-parent family, for example, that that sticks around with the kids in the home until they go to college, which is crime rates. Uh, uh, I can't use this word, but uh, out of wedlock births. All by any of these numbers, if, if, if the Asian Americans are, are leagues ahead of white Americans at this point, and certainly everyone else. And that has created this, this huge crisis in many ways for places like Google or, 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 or the diversocrats that are terrified of this. And I agree with you. I don't see why the brilliance of America, speaking as a complete immigrant, is not the extraordinary ability of different racial groups to contribute different things in different ways that obviously massively overlap, but also have very distinctive characteristics and that make America unique. Uh, the, the, to see black America, for example, as entirely a function of its oppression by white America is, to my mind, to miss just a huge amount of black cultural achievement, of power, of energy, uh, of, of having informed white America in a ways that white America, I, I think white, white Americans don't realize how black they actually are, how much the general culture has shifted their particular culture and how all this- I mean, it's, 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 it, it may be the dominant strand of America's soft culture and uh, soft power in the- you know, in the rest of the world. Yeah, <laughs> so, there, is, there is no group that is cooler from Korea to China to India to average than the African than the African American. I mean, it's 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 an extraordinary achievement of social capital and and social power. Let's let's return to the the planks of the successor ideology because it's obviously a little confusing. Uh, I mean, I've 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 done my duty in the coal mines of postmodern philosophy in a way that I eventually decided was not worth the continued effort. Uh, but obviously the work of is it, how would you how would you describe say the various camps that are colluding? Sorry, right, go on. So there's candy D'Angeloism, right? Which is, they are both in different ways derivatives of critical race theory. Um, and then there is um, there is McKinnonism, right? Which is there's Catherine McKinnonism and um, and the the key point for her is her there's a kind of subjectivism of harm um, that that derives from a certain strand of feminism, which sort of like she her her, her famous statement is that. Um, Sexual assault, like rape, is 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 when um, a woman has sex and feels violated, and and so there's this there's this absolute subjectivism there, right? Saying that um, that if the feeling is there, the harm is there. Um, conversely, Kendiism proceeds from this notion that where there are disparities, there there is racism. So it's like totally objective. But in both cases, this kind of totally objective claim that wherever there's disabled, wherever sort of a statistician can find dis dis disparities, 
there, there must be systemic racism. And then on the other hand, this claim that wherever there is a feeling of harm, there is harm that, um, that must be kind of acknowledged, recognized, and also disciplined and punished. Both of them sort of leave intent out of the picture, right? And, 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 um, and so it's that kind of attempt to collapse, right? Like our traditional ideas of, 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 of culpability and, 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 and of, you know, this kind of legal idea that like there has to have be a guilty mind, right? Like prior to your being culpable and held culpable is what both of these movements in different ways, um, sort of, they kind of tapped out. They reached a point where they saw that they had tapped out what was obtainable, right? Like through our traditional liberal framework. And they saw that like, if they wanted to squeeze more, uh, and I'm making air quotes, gains, right? For uh, oppressed groups, they would have to cannibalize. <laughs> those values of free speech and due process and, and sort of turn them against themselves. And so what, where I see the ideological succession is we move to this point where there is this turn, right? Where um, it was simply about the extension of what we understood to be forms of recognition and acknowledgements and, um, you know, onto those who had hitherto been, um, you know, hitherto been excluded from them. And then there's the, like this recognition that like that actually isn't enough. Like it actually isn't gonna bring us the outcomes that we seek. And if we want to get the outcomes we seek, we have to become disciplinary and punitive in ways that we have hesitated to be so up until now. And so th th there's three parts of it, right? Like there's, um, well, there's four parts of it, right? There's Candy D'Angeloism, there is McKinnonism, which kind of in the Title IX system, they built a kind of model repressive apparatus of like, because that repressive apparatus is about sort of like taking claims of harm at face value and treating them as guilt. But they're also about like changing people's understanding of consents and changing their, changing their, um, changing their souls really, right? And so like it's a Foucauldian, project, right? It's one that uses Foucault as a guidebook, recognizing the fact that like constituted powers and authorities that make knowledge, uh, you know, uh, can inevitably do kind of create the worlds, right? And that we can actually like seize hold of them. And we can, we ourselves can be involved in the process of world making. And, and, and so how do we get to the, and then of course, the, it's the postmodern, you know, sort of the various postmodern movements, you know, sort of gender ideology, you know, sort of at the vanguard of all of this, that shows how sort of like simply by screaming at people on Twitter or uh, confronting them uh, in a classroom can get us to the point where we can make a med school professor apologize for using the word pregnant women, right? Like that's a tremendous, um, that's a tremendous kind of like apotheosis of one's power that we're able to kind of like manufacture and conjure out of sheer willfulness and sheer domination of a certain kind of discourse. Um, and, and then we can actually like seize control of the means, like the administrative means 
of power that create classification so that like we get governments to actually acknowledge these new forms of identity that that we have that you know that nobody had heard of prior to 2008 2009 2010 and the concomitant to this new form of identity that has to be recognized is a new form of oppressor right and so like the 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 creation of the category this is gender person you know sort of like not so long ago representing you know 99.5% right of the of the population was suddenly sort of reconceived as a group of oppressors, right, who had to be in various ways policed by authority, right, to prevent them from doing harm. And so there's there's a whole kind of like, there's a whole kind of like um, archipelago of, of, of assumptions where we go from, somebody talks about something on, on, on uh, something and invents a term, demisexual, right, that describes somebody that, actually needs to have an emotional connection with someone. And then there are many jokes by conservatives on Twitter saying like, oh, like, you, you know, you're just a chick, right? Like you had to like invent a form of queer identity, right? To, uh, to, to exist in this world. But the point is, is that like, that was something that some guy on Tumblr invented in, 20, in 2005. And now we have this machinery, this apparatus of social change that's able to take that, put it on the conveyor belt to the point where it then is, it's, it's now on dictionary.com, it's on you know, webmd.com, this, this is a recognized form of identity and it comes with it the various privileges and immunities and that come with being other than normal. And so we get to this point where like, kids are no longer normal, kids are like either, either um, either gifted, right, or they are disabled in some way, right? And, and it's, it's, it's this kind of general, like, reconception of the idea of the identity um, where there's a kind of flight from being the person who is just the norm toward seeking the, uh, the, the, the special kind of uh, dispensation, the special form of power that accrues to you by virtue of having some kind of identity. And so you, now you have all these people, all these DSA members who list their pronouns, but they also list their disabilities. You know, they'll, they'll say, you know, they'll say queer, non-binary, but then they'll also say, uh, you know, ADHD. And, you know, they'll, they'll be very keen to identify themselves with some category that, that gives them, uh, you know, so like, uh, you know, you get extra time on a test if you're disabled. And so as a result, like in the year 2014 at Pomona, they asked, the percentage of students who declared themselves to be disabled in some way in, in 2014 was 5%, right? And when they, they asked the student body of 2019, the, the figure is 22%. And so like the number of disabled kids did not increase by factor of four. What increased was people's sense of their identity. And, and it is this kind of like combination of, like race is a privileged node in all of this within the successor ideology and race is the kind of basis of the um, infrastructure of social change because we needed to create a federal office of civil rights in order to, in order to break Jim Crow in the 1950s and 1960s. Of course, we did have to do that, but, you know, sort of Christopher Caldwell in his book writes about how, you know, that did, you know, it was a kind of emergency power that was created within the federal government in order to deal with 
a great moral evil that had to be eradicated at any cost, right? And and but like what followed in its wake then are the you know the, this 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 need and this building out of this machinery to create ever new categories, and then we got to the point where sort of like you know like most of the things that represented systemic institutionalized racism in the old sense of the word, right? Like had in fact been dismantled, right? Like by 1964, it, the process by which systemic um, uh, institutionalized sexism took longer, right? And so there was, you, you needed like a recognition of domestic violence as a real form of crime. And you needed sort of like to get rid of the force requirement and rape. And there were like all of these different ways the system was designed against women, I think as late as like the early seventies, you know, you needed like a man's signature to get a credit card. Like, and so like there was a longer process of, um, of dismantling patriarchy, right? But like at a certain point, patriarchy was in fact dismantled. And we now are at the point where they're like, women are actually more, there are more female managers, right? Employed in corporate America than there are male managers employed in corporate America. And so, like, we did, in fact, at a certain point, like, cross that inflection point. And nonetheless, right, like, there, we have this, like, activist infrastructure that needs there to be great moral emergencies. And so, like, we, and, and so, like, cause-oriented donors at the major foundations and at the universities have provided a home and incentive to take a certain category of college graduate and employ them and employ them in identifying, manufacturing in some cases, new crusades to go on. And the, the point at which you sort of cross over, the where you cross beyond the threshold of liberation, let's say gay marriage, right? And, and you move in, that has been attained. Then it becomes necessary to um, you know, uh, forbid cops from participating in the parade, to forbid Israelis from participating in the parade, to, you know, to sort of like move on to like a series of other politicized, right? Like, you know, and, and to embed these in identity in a way so that like to be gay, you know, is to support, you know, Palestinian self-determination where to be gay is to, you know, is to fight, uh, uh, you know, police brutality. And so the combination of all of these things in a kind of ever succeeding, what used to once be a kind of academic parlor game of being the person who could identify, well, what about this dimension of oppression? What about that dimension of oppression? Crossed over <laughs> from like merely being this thing that we we're all used to encountering if we had ever been in a left activist organizing space to like actually like, oh, like major corporations are now speaking this language, right? And, you know, the federal government is now, they're, they're doing land acknowledgements, you know, of the Native Americans and they're, you know, the Federal Reserve, right? Is, you know, speaking of um, it, its duty in fighting systemic racism. Um, and so it's this, it's at the point where you have this like coalescence and this maxing out <laughs> of, of, of the activist sensibility and it's mainstreaming where you cross over into this new thing that becomes more than the sum of all of its parts and that crucially derives its moral justification 
from a new model of the human being as being kind of like, uh, you know, like vulnerable and in need of administrative guidance, care, support, supervision, and policing of attacks on one's, um, you know, sense of well-being. Like a new sense of like the responsibility of the state for the uh, to protect you against whole new categories of intangible harm that are now in the process of being redefined as violence, right? And 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 so successor ideology speaks of a kind of vastly less disciplinary society of the street and a vastly more disciplinary society of the bedroom and boardroom, based upon this idea that. The real sort of oppression and terror and trauma in the society is actually happening within the nuclear family, within the right, like within there's been a like complete inversion of the of, of the sort of the points of moral gravity. And also uh, where, indifference to the actual slaughter of black Americans in in urban centers where lives are being lost at a rate that, that really should stagger any sane human being. And yet that is not the focus anyway of the, the activity and the energy. The focus is, right. is, is finding ways to, to expose, demoralize and stigmatize the cops. And that's, that takes precedence. I want to so, just want uh, the symbol for me, I'm walking down the street in Provincetown and suddenly first time this year, I mean, I was always kind of, I always cringed at the rainbow flag because it is lame beyond measure. And because at the time I thought this, this is kind of a way to link us to the rainbow coalition, which was Jackson. That's when the flag first emerged, but obviously as a metaphor for inclusion or whatever, it's lame, but it's fine. But no, it turns out it's not enough the, that you have to add now these two rather weird phallic pincers coming in from either side, which includes stripes of pink, white, blue, black, and brown, which, which are now invading the flag from each side of the pole, representing trans people, non-binary people, asexual people, and then black and brown people regardless of the coherence of that argument with respect to uh, gay rights. And I don't know what this means, but it's not something a gay person has any necessary relationship to, as far as I'm concerned. I, I'm just like, what happened here? Why are we being dragooned? And the question is, who created this flag? Who imposed it? And the truth is, a friend of mine was walking down the street and saying, you know, next year there won't be any regular rainbow flags because the regular rainbow flag will be a sign that you're a white supremacist. And the rainbow flag turning into a, into a representation of that just shows that there is no end to this. There can be no end. For, for, when I wrote Virtue Normal, it was really an attempt to construct homosexuality and the rights of homosexuals, which I regarded to be genuinely infringed within a strictly liberal framework. So that it has an assumption that after certain key legal prohibitions from the government itself had been removed, if, the, if the, those obstacles had been removed, then we would have achieved our ends and we could get on with our lives. And the goal was to get past politics into life. And <laughs> <laughs> sure enough, uh, we do that. And I'm ready to move on. And I think a lot of gay people were. But of course, these huge organizations, these big groups, and of course, the progressive left, which needs, needs this fight, 
uh, for psychological, spiritual, all sorts of reasons, refuse to let it go. And so we now have this no longer gay rights movement or civil rights movement, and any way I understand it, with this LGBTQRSTUVIWXYZ plus two and a half movement, which is increasingly quietly mocked among normal saying gay people. I mean, you can't believe that most normal people going about their lives actually share this or talk like this. Now, there are a few who do their best to harass and bully everybody else, but not many, uh, because the truth is there has never been a place in time in human history where it's been better to be a trans person, for example, than the United States in 2021, not by, by, by yard. And you can have, for example, an absolute breakthrough in civil rights, which is what the Bostock decision was, in which the 1964 Act is used through the sex mechanism, which is a very strong mechanism, to defend trans rights, is a, is a huge victory. It's the end, basically. But no, that's not enough. And it goes on and on. We have to, we have to make sure it's a right to have puberty blockers when you're eight or nine. Uh, if you do not agree with this, and I have concerns about medicating children before they've gone through puberty who are not clear about who they are, which I would say is about 100% of them. Uh, but that means, as someone on Twitter said, when Julie Offy said, that I am kicking people. I, I've taken up the ladder behind me. I want to I screw with these trans people because I hate them. And that's the other. There's always, <laughs> always a shift towards the word hate, which is almost completely inconceivable and inapplicable to that particular point of view. But it, there it, we are. We have a movement that won dramatically. And it won, by the way, because we adopted classical liberal arguments, which actually do have real sway in America. And we talked to people and we acted responsible. We respectable. Yes, we were respectable. We spoke politely. We, we put suits and ties on when we were on television. We, we did not curse people. We treated religious people with dignity and sincerity, not vicious bile. And we won faster than anywhere else. And yet the lesson people take from that, abandoned all those principles, junked liberalism, and engage in this kind of mow-mowing of a future in which all sexualities are dismantled. And that, that's, that's really what it comes down to. And, and I think gay, gay people are beginning to understand, oh man, this means that they're actually going to deconstruct us as well. And boy, they sure are. So in order to keep the wheel turning, you, in many cases, end up having to cannibalize the prior subjects. Of course of you do. Gay white men are the next on the chopping block. Uh, they, they must be guilty because they're not doing anything, right? I mean, again, you're guilty for doing nothing now because silence so, is violence. Silence. So the gay white man is now in the... Oppressor category. In the picture, the Norman Rockwell picture of the little black girl walking to school, the the gay, the gay white man is the hate-filled white person, right? Like jeering um, her yeah. in in the in the narrative. Yeah, and the narrative is at, at, it's totally detached from reality, but it's also incredibly potent at the same time. Mm -hmm. It's that uncanny combination of its potency and its unreality that is just so fascinating to me that I don't fully understand, which is why. You know, like I'm going on this kind of odyssey to try to understand this. And I, I got intimations of this back in 2011 when Corey Robbins' book about the sort of reactionary mind came out. Or uh, it was it was about sort of history of conservatism. 
And it just proceeds from this idea that like, you know, conservatism is fundamentally reactionary and it, and, and whenever there are movements for, on, you know, for, for rights or, you know, it, it always produces this class of malcontents who turn against it. And, and I was, it just made me think, hmm, does that mean that anything that portrays itself as progressive is necessarily right? Do we not have the ability to judge? Do we not have the ability to reason and deliberate about whether this particular set of claims is true? Does this thing that was manufactured by some professor in 2010, does it, you know, does it because some very vocal people, a very vocal, uh, you know, minority of people sort of insists that, that it is the civil rights movement of our time and, and, and the arc of history is on its side. Must that always be true? Uh, and, and so this is the question. So like the abolitionists, right, like the 19th century, were the unrealistic utopian idealists of their time who were running around telling people who did not have the moral imagination to think that this institution that had always been a part of human society would cease to be a part of human society. And they, you know, they, they, were, they were annoying to the people of that time, but they were in fact right, that there was indeed a great moral emergency that had to be eradicated at any cost. And that cost ended up being the 19th century's bloodiest war. Um, but they were right. <laughs> now here's the question. <laughs> Today we have a group of people who, supported by the Ford and Rockefeller Foundations and the Carnegie Foundation, middle-class sinecures, but their job is to expand our moral horizons and to say, abolish borders, abolish prisons, abolish police, abolish gender difference, abolish, abolish whiteness, abolish differential outcomes on tests, by abolishing the tests, abolish, right? That's their prescription. Can we reason about those, about those prescriptions? And can we deliberate about them? And can we actually reach the conclusion that, no, in, in spite of the fact that you want to portray yourself as, the, as at the vanguard of history, it, you know, like expanding our moral horizons, in fact, what you are doing, right? Like, were you to succeed in your goals of abolition of all of these institutions without which modern societies cannot function, right, would be to drive us off of a ditch, like into a ditch. Are we able to go through that process? And it seems like within the confines of sort of the new intellectual respectability, the new respectability politics that has taken over the Democratic Party and its affiliated institutions, the answer kind of seems like no, because I don't <laughs> see anyone doing it. And the ones who do immediately become, you know, at best kind of like heterodox grifter posers, if not white supremacist, whatever. So, but what if, no, what, what, what if, if at the end of that deliberation process, like it's actually wrong, right? Like it's actually wrong that like our utopia is going to be obtained by the abolition of all of those institutions without which actually, no, like a modern society can't function. Right. Yes. So the question is the... to me, so what is what drives that? And part of it, 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 what drives it is, first of all, this, this uh, is emotion, obviously, and the the vision in a way of cruelty being inflicted upon people with less power than people with power. 
And that is emotionally gut-wrenching whenever it hurts. And it will happen in a free society. It happens in every society, but it will happen in a free society. If you can weaponize that emotionally and then claim that those who are taking position X as opposed to position Y are in fact enabling this by res resisting. And this is why the Floyd thing was so crucial. What you had there was nine horrifying minutes, but which created a symbol for all of America and all of American history, uh, which was what which would lead to a, a, an extraordinary emotional response, which is utterly admirable and right in many ways. The question is, when does one leave that emotional, visceral response and apply reason to this case, how, what it represents, how representative is it, how many people are actually being killed, what is the broader context of this, a discussion that no one wanted to have. Uh, and those of us who at the time said, I want, to, I want to write a column raising those questions, were literally told, you're not writing a column this week, or the entire staff will walk out on you and walk out on us. <laughs> uh, and, and I understood that emotion is good. It's rather like the emotion around the Matthew Shepard murder, which was also, if it had been on tape, God help us, but which was also, well, not also, but which was completely misleading actually, in the nature of what actually happened. And when you actually go through and look at what happened in that case, it is light years away. From, I mean, someone being picked up by a stranger redneck and beaten to a pulp is one story. Someone's ex-lover <laughs> already dealing meth with you and then beating the crap out of you for no reason, that's a whole different time, right? So, and, but, but by raising the opposition, that possibility, that's actually the truth. I am completely excised from any gay organization, any gay group, any legitimacy whatsoever. So, uh, so this is a more I am on the... the side of the person beating up Matthew Shepard, or I am on the side of Derek Chauvin, which of course isn't true. It's a question of so, whether you can leverage this emotion against individuals and bring the entire viscerality of that emotion to bear upon someone who's actually innocent of this particular thing, but has to bear responsibility for it. And who, who wants to endure that? Who wants to be the asshole that stands up and says, I don't agree. I think, you know, I think we have to look at other things here. And so we created this, uh, this technology for amplifying emotion. Right. And, and we, we demonstrated its capacity to override reason and deliberation. And nonetheless, we still get these things where, like, we elected out Eric Adams. And so everyone sort of rallies to these moments and, you know, sees their hope in that. So, like, reason can override emotion. We can go from, like, 16,000 to, like, 20,000 murders in a year, <laughs> like, in no small part, right? Because, and it's kind of like, okay, let's say the police are, are being babies, right? Let's say that they're like refusing to, like they're going on a kind of soft strike nationwide. Aren't they nonetheless proving the point that their activity or their non-activity affects the primary, right? Like, are they not nonetheless like, you know, sort of like, even if they're doing it spitefully, right? Like in, in you know, sort of like, um, uh, nonetheless still, demonstrating the empirical point that like we want them to be active if we want to save thousands of lives. And, and so 
that's now been demonstrated and and you know you you have like a handful of contrarians right like journalists that like put that stuff out there and then you have like a handful of like contrarian figures that like um that uh you know do 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 very well by that right but like they're but 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 you know they're on Substack, right? right. Like, they, and like, <laughs> and like, you know, in some cases, not mine, but in some cases, like making a lot more money th than they would at the old publications. But they're, you know, they're still kind of like moral renegades and pariahs, right? In the process. Yeah. And, and, even though, and so, even though that position may actually, as we found out in New York, be the position of most working class black and Latino people as well. <laughs> I mean, it's what the polls say. It's it's what the overwhelming majority of the polls say. And given an opportunity to vote, as with the affirmative action thing, right? Like like which is something that is almost never brought up to a vote, right? Like we we have polls and we know that you know sort of there is far from universal you know sort of black support for affirmative action and many polls show that there's like a small majority who are, are not that comfortable with it. Also on the and, and immigration, the 1965 Act and its consequences, which we've discussed as probably one of the most important underlying tectonic shifts in America. I don't think most Americans felt they ever voted on that. Yes, it went through the Senate where Ted Kennedy promised, swore that it would not affect the ethnic composition of America whatsoever. They saw that happen regardless they watched as this thing was obviously also abused massively through the southern border, and they just felt no one was listening to them at all. In, and their society was changing so fast, and they didn't feel the elites of either side really were prepared to even listen to them, or at least acknowledge that something profound had taken place and that what we're dealing with are the consequences of that. Yeah. Uh, the So, and I agree, it, it, it feels almost as if the last 12 months, you could not have devised a better refutation of some of the arguments of BLM than the last 12 months, uh, especially when you look at the cost in black life, which is the overwhelming. And you, you have a few shots outside 14th Street in, in Northwest DC. And suddenly, if these writers were living in the neighborhoods that were actually affected by this, uh, and look, they weren't just they, they, they were throwing out their editor at the New York Times because of the need, because they refused to allow the police or anybody, uh, not the police, but the federal forces to impose order. And that to me was also a moment. Uh, the, 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 it, was, it was the moment when Bennett, James Bennett, um, full disclosure, old friend, colleague, et cetera, editor, was, 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 was defenestrated. <laughs> I love that word. Um, literally thrown out the window, thanks to an army led by Nicole Hannah Jones and her ilk. I just find some of this emotionally manipulating, and in a way that's really intellectually terrible. Um, I remember watching. So, yeah, go on. So there's a there, there's a machine that that allows emotion to over override reason. And it's not just a discursive phenomenon. It, it, it's a phenomenon that manifested itself in policies, uh, you know, throughout the country that 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 had some of these results that you cite as the basis of refutation. It's been all easy wins on Twitter, actually, like for the last year. And uh, but but what we still don't have, right, is is um, 
the, the discourse has made itself impregnable. And, and so it was a sort of like through this kind of like process of like mimetic antagonism, right? Like it, it sort of, it got very expert. It got very expert at saying that's white supremacist. That's you are a tool of white supremacy, Asian man. Right. And, and they, they got really, very good at multiracial whiteness was one of the great new uh, innovations. Multiracial whiteness, um, right? Yes, uh, right. Or the uh, astonishing it, idea that we don't know all the details of this case, but the Atlanta shooting was a white supremacist act driven by hatred of Asian Americans, for which we have no right. actual and, proximate evidence at all. And yet it is still. And here's the case: they will charge him with a hate crime. Very interesting to see if that holds up. But if intent is irrelevant, then it's a hate crime, period. Every crime that would I mean, involve two people of different demographic is a hate crime, whether there's hate at so all. The, and so the hate crime plays this role in the in the media dramaturgy of all this. If they don't actually I, exist. I, I, I looked at the data and, um, you know, the data is not re really reliable, but like, you know, the data shows that like, Black people are quite a bit more likely to commit a hate crime than almost anyone else. Uh, and, quite disproportionately so, yeah. That's why it's beginning to worry about hate crimes. Because they if think you it have can a, lead to mass incarceration of minorities. It, if you have a structural analysis of race, that should not surprise you, right? Because the people who are sitting pretty and don't have to attack people on the street are the beneficiaries of the white supremacist system and its victims will be more likely to be personally full of hate, right? Like in their attacks. And so that's not a surprise. And yet, and yet the core of the narrative, of course, is one of unrelenting, you know, white terrorism against non-whites. And so, you know, like I have tweeted many times about the sort of the great, the euphoria turning into dejection when, you think that it's the white perp, and then it, it ends up not being, and then the dejection, and then the and then the story immediately disappears. Uh, this happened with the uh, you know the murder of the, the the BLM member right in London, uh, the the BLM leader in London, where there was this kind of rising excitement about who might have killed her. And it was a brutal you know taking out of our because we we live yeah, in this. Yeah, no, then, and then but then we found out. Yeah, and then we found out who it was, and then it was not a story anymore, right? And and right. this is this is like the the recurrent. Uh, pattern in, in in all of these things, and so like we have this clear pattern of like serial assaults on Asians in the streets, and you know it it's it's not by Trump supporters, it's not by white supremacist men screaming, "This is Trump country," right? It, it, you know, and and uh, and and so there's a lot of use of the passive voice, and then of course there's this great euphoria when the uh, the, the white perpetrator emerges, and we don't have evidence. We don't have any evidence about what his motives are. He has given his own accounting of what the motives are, um, and and you know it, it has to do with his 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 weird kind of uh, you know tortured evangelical sexuality and his lashing out at, at women, um, and you know, it, terrible thing. <laughs> um, but doesn't Matthew Shepard was a terrible thing. I mean, no, again, you can't. You can't. It's. It, the minute you say, but it's actually the reality of it was this, it doesn't detract from its horror at all. 
It's, 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 I have a, I'm not plugging my book, but I I wrote a piece back in 1999, I think called What's So Bad About Hate, which was for the New York Times Magazine cover. Can you imagine today? A cover which was basically said, can we deconstruct this word hate and see what the fuck it means? And why is it being used in this crude and absurd way? And how are different feelings about different minority groups utterly different from each other? How are they structured differently? Again, just throwing complexity into the mix. But that is not what people want. And they want this this black-white power struggle thing. And I think the left has realized that that is so emotionally potent as a symbol. Uh, and that it can be deployed endlessly uh, with almost no pushback. And insofar as there is pushback, it's like you see this on the school boards around the country, uh, it is a function of astroturfing. It is bullshit. These people don't know what they're talking about. It's not happening. All these arguments that come up to deny or the the attempt to sort of portray people, like I'm not whining about myself, but... The idea that that I'm interested in white supremacy is, I mean, it's, the whole thing is just completely bonkers. And yet it is routinely well, trotted out by these people. Well, I mean, there's an ex, there's an expansive definition of the term, right? And so, like, it refers to the Christchurch killer, and it refers to shades of mascara, right? And so that was the kind of uh, cultural studies term that it first happened in Salon and it was just like this weird, salon.com, right? Like they were the first to bring this kind of like academic, activist, uh, you know, identity obsessed jargon into mainstream media. And it was seen as this weird thing, but then like Buzzfeed kind of made it. And then eventually like it took over the New York Times and nobody, I don't think anybody in 2014 saw that as something that was going to happen. No, I never thought I'd hear the word Um, queer used in the news story by the New York Times as if it was simply a, a, a synonym for, or not synonym, a, a, the equivalent of, of gay or homosexual. Uh, they just had a story about a 13-year-old sex worker. I, I don't know if you saw, saw it, but um, I, I just kind of glanced at it uh, in the sidelines. But, but, you know, it was one that it was very much aligned with all of these successor concepts about sex work and about trans identity and so on but you know and and, and it was but all the presenting in a very in american media there has been no real discussion of the question of trans youth and puberty blockers and hormone the actual details of this which are aired for example in the british press in which there's a lively public debate about this not allowed in the new york times or the Washington Post at all and explained insofar as it was as purely an uprising in transphobia for some reason or other and that's simply the rubric. Now, obviously, this is also facilitated by a generational question and also the, the, fa- the failing models of the, the media, which required them to import large numbers of just graduated fanatics to churn out clickbait, essentially, as a way to generate desperately needed income. And in the process, it brought them in without any experience in the real world, any attempt, but with the fanaticism of the newly converted. And I think that had a huge impact. The other thing is that the, the editors and authority figures in, in journalism and in, in the culture in general are just find it hard to tell young people, you're wrong uh, for these reasons, and you're not cool. We're cool. We figured this out a long time ago, and you are not. That kind of, I mean, I think of someone like Dean Baquette, who's like basically, you know, he's like a, a, little, a little, little badminton 
thing being popped over the net <laughs> by various people all the time. That's about as heavy and as hefty his authority is in that uh, in that unit. In the Don, Don McNeil case, saying in one letter, <laughs> intent doesn't matter, and then having to come back later, well, of course, we have to assume that intent matters. Because if intent doesn't matter at all, then we are in a whole new fucking world uh, in terms of understanding human behavior, in terms of understanding human responsibility, in terms of understanding anything at all. But Paquette was perfectly well, prepared so to put that out there for a few, <laughs> for a couple of days before he realized what insanity he was promoting. So there's the, that moment in the... Uh... There was the leak uh, the, uh, town hall meeting yeah. from 2019 yeah. that was published on Slate where some unnamed, I'm going to say they're a junior employee, although they may not, not actually be young, um, saying like, you know, racism is everything. It's in our food. It's in our, you know, so like, like it has to be the generative basis of all our coverage of politics, world affairs and everything else. And cooking. And you can, you can see Beckett's discomfort <laughs> with, with that. And he kind of tries to talk around it in a, you know, in a, in an emollient kind of way, but he's resisting it. He's he is from an older regime, um, and then of course now we look at the paper and we see that 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 commenter at that meeting, you know, runs the newspaper more effectively than Dean held does. Held held the balance of the future. Yeah. Knew that the future belonged to her or him or they. And 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 Beckett was you know was was powerless to resist it. He had some do in response because I found that exchange fascinating too. He said, uh, "Well, we're doing the 1619 project, uh, and we're and, and now that we've finished uncovering uh, Trump's uh, uh, treasonous relationship with the the Kremlin, we are going to put all our effort into race now, and we will and quote unquote help teach our readers to think more this way." Teach our readers yes. that, that at that point the, the the New York Times becomes this actual pedagogical tool to convert a generation to this new illiberal uh, to the successor ideology, which is also why a, a special issue of a magazine, which you know you and I have seen plenty of special issues of magazines, fine, you know, like what, but why would it be mandated for educational curricula? Why would suddenly an issue of the magazine be as part of its overall project? placed in American high schools. Why would then the Pulitzer Committee and all the usual circle jerkers turn around and say, we're not just going to promote this and have it distributed, we're going to give it a Pulitzer, even though by any standards, uh, it was a deeply flawed project by any ob objective standards. Um, but no, we have a historical the, myth. The, 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 this movement must not be stopped. We have a historical myth of the of founding. Uh, that displaces the, you know, the myth of the American founding. And then we have, uh, you know, a pantheon of uh, exemplary victims, including Matthew Shepard. There's, there's actually, you know, there is a shrine to him, I think, at the uh, in National Cathedral. Yeah. So, so like meth, meth, meth dealer who's, you know, who, who, you know, who, who welched on his buddies, right? Like, and, and um, you know, terrible thing, sure. But like, it probably not Saint. what we thought it was going to be. <laughs> And, um, but he was a saint because but it, he was a victim. It doesn't of this, matter. This, 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 this force. The facts don't matter. He is an exemplary figure who stands in for, uh, you know, I'm sure terrible things have happened in the past. And, and then these other people who come to stand in, uh, and, and, 
and then new holidays, new uh, new nomenclature, uh, new language, uh, ways of identifying yourselves as and simply simply just like uh, you know declaring your gender identity. You know your gender identity means that you're saying that I am male by virtue of the fact that I identify, right? And, and that you know, and and you sort of you tell people. Well, you know, it's just, it's just a, like a, it's just being polite, right? But it's, it's not just being polite. No. It's about declaring your, de stating that you believe people are male or female by virtue of their identification. It's, it's a philosophical intervention in which you are uh, being sort of coerced into, you know, softly. And then uh, we will, we will hit a tipping point where it will not be so soft, uh, you know, sort of mandated into, into declaring your fealty to this understanding of human identity and human nature, which is in turn supposedly linked to this whole corpus of other concepts, right? Because if you believe this thing, you have to believe this thing because the world is a matrix of interlocking oppressions and, and, and to fight against one oppression is to fight against all oppression necessarily and, and to fight it at the grand scale is, uh, you, uh, to fight it at the small scale is to fight it at the grand scale. So you, so so white supremacy is in our food. It's in our. It's at the makeup counter, but it culminates in the Christchurch killer, <laughs> and it culminates in American society with all of these identifiable statistically statistical disparities and outcome that are evidence of the same transhistorical, all-pervading force that is present at the micro level to the macro level right and, and and that and that if we want to be good people who are aligned with the powers that be that are now aligned with this project and derive their moral justification for it and so like you know like uh, i always want to quote, quote the tweeter who said that you know so like woke capitalism what's going on there like it is about taking consumerism and applying the the, the power of moral compulsion upon it right and so why would corporations not do that right and so like and then why would they not then align themselves with all of the great and good in society who are in turn aligned with it and then and then those who resist you increasingly become an enemy class along a, a whole series of dimensions and what this does is it is a it is a um it is a remedy for what Fukuyama called the terminal boredom at the end of history, right? There is, there is a need for people educated past a certain point to identify themselves with some great moral cause and in the absence of a deity, in the absence of a, a, a spiritual world, um, and, and in the need to identify themselves with a moral vanguard, um, we can just invent one right. and people will buy it because the machinery is there to spread it and they'll actually believe it. <laughs> and, and, and so I, I don't, I think, you know, a lot of like, kind of like people, older people in the, in the media industry who definitely didn't think this way 10 years ago, are they just kind of treading water and accommodating themselves to it? Or are they dealing with cognitive dissonance by converting? To, to, to some degree or other. I, I really don't know the answer to that. I suspect more of the latter than the former, actually, because it's easy to do. And it, and there's so much social 
approval for that. And you are only going to, there's also a slight fear, however. I mean, one thing's out another, I, it's, it, it, go read um, another leaked transcript of a town hall at the Atlantic after they hired, then fired Kevin Williamson. And to just <laughs> follow the words of Jeffrey Goldberg as he attempts to both suck up to, but not completely cede all authority to Tanahasi Coates. And it, uh, it's it's it is just an absolutely <laughs> excruciating way in which this person who has, you know, basically zero <laughs> principles about anything seeks to find a way to remain powerful in the established networks of Washington journalism in, in front of a crowd where clearly Jeffrey knows that if push came to shove, the guillotine would be for him next. And there's that uh, there's that slight concentration of the mind that these and the last thing any liberal-minded journalist wants to be described as is a dinosaur who prevented change and was therefore gotten rid of. And that is the last thing they want to hear about them. So it's the last part of their identity they could ever possibly imagine. And and career is and power is by far the most one thing we've learned in both in politics and in culture and in media in the last, uh, let's say, seven or eight years is I, 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 I always thought people were sometimes a little overly cynical about human motivations, but I realize I'm under cynical. I, I need to be more jaundiced towards these people and their facility with whatever they decided to call their principles. And that goes for the, you know, in Washington, the, 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 the sane, intelligent Republicans who were just lying through their teeth all the time about this crazy person that was their president and can't ever acknowledge in public what they obviously acknowledge in private. And then the remaining right. elites in the media who were just terrified of these people and doing their best to suck up to them. And, and, and many of them, I think someone like Ron Brownstein, for example, just, got, just switched massively over. Peter Beinart, just, whoa, we're, we're now, we're really there. It's like, you're not just a fellow traveler, you're a fucking vanguard figure. And I, yes, I, my breath, I wouldn't say it's been taken away, but there's been a certain amount of several intakes of breath over the last few years as I watch these people's inability to defend, defend, for example, the right of an editor to publish what the hell he or she wants, period. That's the whole point. They have authority. Uh, it doesn't help also that, of course, at the same time, these, these newspapers and magazines have become massive enterprises, much bigger than they used to be. Uh, you know, something like The Atlantic, which is still a wonderful magazine, does great things. I know plenty of great writers for it and, and produces really good journalism still. But nonetheless, you know, it's clear that that uh, the, where it's headed and what, what it's really reflecting. And it's certainly not challenging power. I, mean, I think that's well, that's interesting. It's, it, it's, it, a lot of it is depending on how comfortable you are being in opposition or being somewhere where your career could be hurt. Are you comfortable with that? And I noticed that a lot of the Substack people, like, you know, I have lots of issues with Glenn Greenwald. I've known him fucking ever. But, and and we, we started out, we started out in the early blogosphere like 20 years ago. And me and Greenwald and Drudge and a couple of others. And I just realized this guy's an ornery, an ornery guy. He's a troublemaker. He's a, he's a piss taker. He's a relentless foe. Great. That's what we need in the blogosphere. Come along. I don't care. I disagree with you about this, that, and the other. And same with Taibi, of course. Same, thank God, belatedly with Iglesias, who's, who's, who's so much. I mean, again, the difference between his writing now and when he was at that hideous prison called Vox, you know, I mean, it's really just <laughs> spectacular how much more wonderful it is to read and listen to him now. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just venting. I'm, I'm just venting. But, uh, 
But I agree with you. I, well, I, I don't think, I don't look, think there is, there's much of a future for people like us in that media, unless things change. Now, it could be, for example, we get a landslide. The trouble is, if I think about, let's say there's a political price to this. Let's say the Republicans win big next year, which I think they probably will. The, they will simply reinterpret all that as the, as, the, as the tenacity of white supremacy. And so we can't really win that that this is going on regardless. Uh, and and I, and I also have extreme nervousness about 2024 in terms of Trump again, or a Trump-like figure. I mean, my, at this point, I'm hoping for a kind of saner version of a multiracial, multicultural Trump in as much as, which is an insane idea, of course, but someone like on the right that can, instead of telling a story of oppression in America, talk of story of historic and successive liberations. And instead of describing the world as a, as a force for uh, darkness and oppression, is actually a, an amazingly complex, a diverse flowering of possibilities. And, and if one were to take a deep breath and look at what America is, what it has created, what, what we are living in, as we look around us, I mean, it's staggering how much we've achieved and how diverse this country can be within liberal structures with extraordinary success for most people, not everyone, but most people. And to look at that achievement and just decide to throw it away because you're bored uh, well, fuck that. <laughs> no. <laughs> and the role of the, well, yeah, go on, Wesley. I'm gonna I'm gonna so this up and give you some uh, the last word here. Go on. So there's this inflection point where, you know, in comedy where like everybody funny you weren't allowed to like, right? And the only person you were allowed to like was like a literal, you know, church lady haranguing you about her oppression, right? And 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 I I anticipate that kind of inflection point being reached in other other cultural areas and and I, I see the kind of emergence of substack as potentially you know this this kind of because you know I think between like the top of the leaderboard at substack may well command an audience you know equal in size to these ostensibly mainstream uh, and then if you add the kind of the Joe Rogan audience or whatever right like we're, we're looking at something that is that, that is quite viable and, and and has a real claim to being the actual mainstream uh, of, of the country. It's just that that which calls itself mainstream is is in the grips of a very sectarian cult of succession, right? And and so, which means the, the mainstream material, has a future. The actual mainstream has a future if it's prepared to get its shit together, and if. For example, the Republican Party were less likely to surrender to the crazies and more able to see this as an opportunity to to, to, re, to restate principles of equality of opportunity as opposed to equality of the outcome. The, the very basic things, tolerance rather than uh, rather than you know uh, the suppression of, of bad views. So, I mean, these things are all really popular. The trouble is that the right is represented by Trump, which I think has made things immensely worse and also because trump has managed to create in many of these people and i get when i'm obviously off the reservation at this point i get often why don't you understand that white supremacists are about to take over the country and turn it into a dictatorship how can you be talking about this stuff when this is happening to which i have to, to say well i am i'm definitely disturbed by certain aspects on the right very disturbed by them and i'm i i didn't exactly hold my peace under trump 
But I don't think that's really the people who actually have power. Uh, I think the, the 6th of January was horrifying, but also comic. Uh, so it, it both captured the, 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 the potency and nastiness and ugliness of what's going on on the right, but also its impotence. And the attempt to make it sound more potent than it could and was is it has not convinced me, uh, which is which is not to say I have any I want to approve of these motherfuckers at all. Absolutely repulsive, hideous human beings that did that for the, for the worst reasons. But I'm not persuaded that if I continue defending liberalism, as I understand it, I will be enabling white supremacy. I don't. So, you know, the ACLU, its sort of classic argument is that, you know, we want to maintain a culture of free speech uh, because the marginalized and the powerless uh, always have the greatest need for it and have always uh, availed themselves of it in the civil rights movement and elsewhere. Um, and it's always most threatened by them. Right. And so we have to maintain that norm. Well, you know, but they, there there is a a new kind of uh, remedy for that, or there's a new resolution to that, which is, you know, the, the Democrats showed that you could, uh, good trouble for me, domestic insurrection for thee, right? Which is not to say that like, yes, of course, the, the domestic insurrection, you know, like what happened on 1-6 was a great, you know, was a, was, was a disgrace, but, 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 but it was above all served as a kind of, uh, a, a kind of, it consolidated in the minds of, uh, you know, a lot of liberals, right? Like this, the, the, this, this sense of, 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 of panic and distress that has, uh, you know, sort of driven them further, right? Like into, in, in, into the sort of politics that got them there in the first place and, and into attitudes of uh, genuine othering and, and enemydom, right, of, of uh, half of the country. And, um, and, and so, and, and they didn't, you know, there, there were some people who got in a lot of trouble, David Shore, right, he's, he's the data guy, he's like, look, the, uh, taking a, uh, an indulgent attitude toward riots resulted in the progressive politics, you know, uh, paying a price, you know, in, in the late 60s, and that turned out not to be true, right? And so the, the fact that there wasn't a price paid for those things and the fact that like the Democrats only succeeded through them uh, electorally um, creates this problem, right? Uh, where, where sort of the thing that you're allowed to say is, oh, this is a gift to the right or this is a gift to conservatives, right? Like if you indulge, if you continue to indulge this bullshit, right? And, and that actually didn't turn out to be true. <laughs> so um, what about the election so of 2020? Uh, you know, like it, they won, right? Right. And, and so like they didn't win as much right, as they right, right. should have. The polls were off. There was more Republican support than and, and nonetheless, right? Like they, they have the presidency. And, um, and so they, they weren't sort of punished for that. And of course, it wouldn't have been good if they had been punished for that with a Trump victory, because Trump is uh, is an accelerant and, uh, and 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 gasoline on this fire. Um, nonetheless, right? Like you know the, the the fact that they won through this, and then and then and then Trump finally at the end gave them right the the thing that was always 
supposed to be on the cusp of happening, but ne that, that never actually did because, in fact, he is an ineffectual figure who does not actually have a will to rule, right? And but he does have a will to be a chaos agent, and and so he and he brought that, you know, the greatest uh, attack on democracy since the Civil War, right? Like a form of catastrophizing rhetoric and and hyperbole, which is just it's just not true. Uh, but but it is a part of a, a fan fictional reality that all too many inf influential figures happen to be living within. Right. Uh, and so and so like okay, we created a machine for uh, hyperbolizing and uh, and allowing emotion to override reason. And it this is what it pr it produced things that that were at the level of salon.com and then at the level of leftist intellectuals and their cancel culture and then at the level of the Trump fucking election and then at the level of burned down half the country over the summer and then at the level of ideological succession and suddenly we're going to embrace moving far beyond what sort of race like you know you can be pretty race conscious in policy but there's a will now to push beyond that far beyond Right. And uh, and so this kind of ping ponging, you know, continual, uh, you know, polarization and, and accelerationism on both ends has brought us to this point where now like both everyone is talking about the end of democracy. Right. And, and it's very unclear whether the great mass of the American public wants anything to do with any of this. But the fantasia and the fan fiction continues, and the 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 need to kind of like root and branch, create a whole new regime based on a new myth of our founding and based upon a new set of exemplary sufferers who provide the moral justification for the exercise of power and the willingness of power to appropriate and be appropriated by that new moral justification. Give, giving both consumerism and the exercise of the national security state a, a new warrant, right, for the exertion of, of new disciplinary power, right, over the individual. Um, that combination of things has gone, just has already gone so far beyond what any of us who kind of raised a little eyebrow when we saw Nicholas Christakis being yelled at in the quad at Yale, right? Like, None of us had any idea at that moment when sort of uh, th th that we would follow a trajectory from uh, Caitlyn Jenner on the cover of Vanity Fair to the next presidential candidate telling uh, a nine-year-old trans boy that he was going to give her, going to give him veto, uh, a veto on her selection for the Department of Education. And then sort of, and then now we speak of birthing people. Now we avoid the words mother, father, right? Like on the floor of the Congress. And it's so, like, I don't fully understand this. At some level, it is just the, the, the contagious power of viral rhetoric to spread because we created a machine to do that at another level. It's, it's happening because power sees a new warrant for its justification and for the creation of a new kind of repressive authority on top of it. And the question is like whether it will escalate itself to the 
to the war that some people seem to be seeking. Because if we want a third reconstruction, reconstruction comes at the end of war. And, 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 and there are those whose rhetoric and whose will, <laughs> those who, when they see a statue of one of the founders scrawled with, oh, you, just, you can just scrawl the New York Times bestseller list on it, right? And, and, and like, you know, because they seek third reconstruction, they actually seek that which leads to another reconstruction, right? And and there's, it's just a fantasy that's that, that that exists in rhetoric, but it's also, it's also like, it's also you know the 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 chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff is defending, uh, you know, Kendiism, right in front of the Congress. Uh, How like or unlike, these are some of the questions that I'm going to be exploring in my Substack. Is this to other things where people kind of memed themselves into revolutionary agitation, right? Like in 1640 or in 1789. Like we're still in that like unreality phase. We're still in that, well, you know, certainly there are dimensions of this where you have a professor profusely apologizing for using the word pregnant women that remind us in their atmospherics, right, of like China in 1972, right? But, but, and the fact that it's happening simply through peer pressure and not through violent coercion makes it even more novel and in a way even more frightening, right? But then again, you know, well, it is largely just a discursive phenomenon. And so the question like I want to answer is, are we in like 2001, the war on terror, which is kind of a short-lived bipartisan consensus, or are we in 1950, the Cold War, where there was a very durable bipartisan consensus ruling this country, or are we in like uh, 4 or 70 whatever, right? Like when the, when, when the, uh, the empire made Christianity, Right, like the the ruling theology of the lands, or is it just a kind of uh, you know 1992 on steroids, as some people want to believe, and not even on steroids, where you know there was a there was a kind of political correctness upsurge, and then and then it was it was beaten back, right? Like the ACLU put out a whole collection of essays, including Henry Louis Gates Jr. saying, you know, like these attacks on free speech are counterproductive and they're problematic and they're not going to lead to the progress that we seek. Um, and they were, you know, we were able to hold off that onslaught and then Clintonism happened and so on. So I am open <laughs> to us being at any of those moments. Uh, and, and I'm going to be like studying that history, you know, looking for analogies. I don't have a real answer. I, I wonder what you think. <laughs> I asked everybody about it, like, because there are, sometimes I just think it's all spectacle. <laughs> and sometimes I think like, oh, we're at the beginning of, you know, we're, we're at the, you know, we're at the end <laughs> of the Enlightenment project. So, you know, like, I, I really don't know. <laughs> yeah, 1640 is a fascinating date. The, the, the long parliament, I, I'm assuming you were, Talking about the, the yes, Civil yeah. War, 
Yeah, you have these rather abstract claims of the absolute powers of the king. You have other intellectual ferment happening, but I don't think anybody really... And then you just have basic problems of how you finance the government and whether the parliament's going to let you do that. But it, eventually it spilled into open conflict, and there, there were, but normally by accident, normally by strange happenings or an individual who exploits the moment. I'm, you know, I, I think so much of this is elite driven that I'm not sure that we, I, I, I'm hoping that we live in a pluralistic enough society that can be counted. Um, you know, I was at the New Republic in the early 90s, very much part of that pushback. So this is like, this is the second time around for me. And we did arrest it. And I think, and I, I think it probably might, uh, simply because I think some of the stuff is self-evidently nuts. And and because parents won't accept it with their kids. And I think I also just have this deep faith that that the generations will 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 turn against it. it it's too oppressive and it will become cool to be subversive again it'll be cool to be breaking these shibboleths it'll be i mean i i gay men should start like excluding everybody from their bars except gay men <laughs> you could have you know you could have reactions to it that that are not entirely functions of bigotry but functions of fuck fuck off leave us alone uh, uh, and that's you know whether that takes anarchic forms like Gamergate or whether it, it takes a broader sense. I, and I think we're seeing that to some extent. Um, but uh, I don't know the answer to your question, Leslie. I really don't. I wish I did. Um, I, I, there are moments when I'm completely despairing about it. And then there are moments when I'm, and like you, there are moments when I think we're in an existential crisis. Another moment when I think we're just watching a show. And uh, it's a, and I think partly because of the way we live now and the way we observe everything and the way we're on the web all the time, it's very hard to de determine what is real and what is not. Um, but I certainly know this, that I will, and I recommend this for all our readers, that there'll be a place we can figure some of this stuff out, I, and it will be on Wesley Yang's Substack, <laughs> Year Zero. Um, and it will be at the Weekly Dish, where we will continue to interrogate these things as rationally as we can and have this kind of conversation to really be honestly wrestling with some of the more difficult problems. So, Wesley, it has been an absolute joy to hang out and to talk. I would love to, what I'd really like to do is go out and have a dinner and then and, and, and just let it, you know, just let the conversation go where it may. Uh, a couple of joints in, it should be doing well. And um, <laughs> I, I just want to let you know, I'm a big fan. I know many listeners and readers, uh, love your work and want to support you. And I encourage them to do so. Um, Year Zero, Wesley Yang on Substack, really wealth, well worth your time and money. Uh, we need to support people with, at this level of, of, of work. And also magazines like The Tablet, which are still doing really wonderful and interesting and, and countercultural and, and counter journalism. In other words, I think, by the way, that there will be a, a counterculture that's against woke. There's got to be. It's, it's got to come. There's, the country is too free for that not to happen. And then before they seize <laughs> means of production, well, we should be, we should have some pushback anyway. And even though I'm just depressed, I'm, you know, I'm invigorated by the struggle. And I, I, you seem to be too, Wesley. And, and I, the ability to keep our emotions in check, really hard, but you do it incredibly well. Um, he's the driest wit on Twitter. 
surpassed his whatever awful product I put out on that particular medium. And it's been lovely to have you, Wesley. Thank you. Okay, thanks so much. And next week, we have the great and powerful, as, as Joe Hurricane calls everyone, the great and powerful Michael Lewis will be with us, uh, an old friend who's been going through some unbelievably awful times um, and a new book. Uh, so we'll see you then. Thanks. <laughs>